the mirror of my mind Time after time I see reflections of you and me Reflections of the way life used to be Tony Gilpin, welcome to Labor Wave Radio. Thanks for having me, Alex. So you're the author of the Haymarket book, The Long Deep Grudge, a story of big capital, radical labor, and class war in the American heartland. It's a fantastic history book, also extremely well-written. Appreciate that. It's not dull language like a Kim Moody article or something. (laughs) I like Kim Moody, but come on, he doesn't write really well. But there's so much in the book, obviously, we can't cover everything. But I kind of wanted to just start the conversation about history itself. This is a book largely focused on the Farm Equipment Workers Union, or the FE for short. It has more than that in it. It even stretches all the way back to the Haymarket Affair. But it primarily focuses on like two decades of time. And I'd like to dig into the details of that story. But before even getting there, I'm kind of curious to hear your thoughts as a historian on the relevance and significance of history. Like, why does it matter to learn about the FE and their practices and approach to unionism close to 100 years today? Like, what significance does this have for us in the present day? The Farm Equipment Workers, which was one of the, for your listeners who either haven't read the book or, you know, this is not a union that is a common household name. So let me just explain a little bit about that. The Farm Equipment Workers Union was one of the unions um, that was expelled from the CIO in 1949 because it was said to be communist dominated. It was one of the original CIO unions it, um, that got its start in the 1930s and organized um, workers in the agricultural implements industry. So those workers who made tractors and combines and all the, the pieces of equipment that um, made it um, possible to Uh, for farmers to do their jobs. So the reason that the book goes all the way back to the Haymarket Affair, as we now refer to it, is because the book centers not just on this union known as the FE and its left-wing ideology, but on its relationship with the dominant um, manufacturer in the industry, International Harvester, which was once the fourth largest corporation in the world um, and immensely powerful company that also um, was really trend-setting, precedent-setting in terms of its approach to union avoidance, labor relations. Um, And it does, its history goes back to the 19th century and was pivotal in um, the Haymarket affair, the Haymarket riot, as it came to be known, because it was a workers' protest outside the original plant of International Harvester McCormick Works that led to the death of several workers that then led to the protest rally the next evening, led by Chicago anarchists. Um, And it was at that protest rally in 1886, in the midst of the big general strike for the eight-hour day, that a bomb was thrown. Uh, Anarchists were ultimately charged with that violence, um, and several of them were hung for that, even though there was no evidence actually connecting them to that crime. So and Cyrus McCormick II, the young then president of uh, the McCormick Company, was pivotal in ensuring that those anarchists died um, or were hung for that. Um, and 
that sort of um, his philosophy, his his anti-unionism carried through into the 20th century and and became a more sophisticated form of union avoidance, the kind that Amazon um, and Starbucks are sort of um, relying on today. So your original question, why does history matter? The FE, maybe more than any other union, was cognizant of its connection to the past. The leaders of that union were always reminding workers who um, joined the, you know, the union was formed in the 1930s and lasted until um, 1955. The leaders of that union were always reminding the members of the debt they owed to those original organizers back in the 19th century who were fighting for the eight-hour day um, and who gave their lives for that struggle. So there were barely, um, you know, any kind of union celebration or commemoration or meeting when the Haymarket martyrs were not mentioned, when the um, when the importance of that early struggle was not emphasized. So connecting struggles today to those struggles in the past is one of the things that historians like me want to t- sort of emphasize for a, for several reasons. I mean, one is because it's important to, to see how things that look like failures, um, ultimately, um, because workers are always looking for that way to challenge management, to seize the rights that belong to them, to fight for their dignity, to fight for safety on the job. And that fight for collective power for so- and for solidarity has been a a long sort of back and forth, you know, two steps forward, one step back struggle that I think we have to 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 look at um, historically in order to recognize that. So at times when, you know, we were talking a little bit before we started this about the frustrations that people are rightly seeing today, I think history can can be inspiring, not like, you know, always in this raw, raw, goody, goody sort of way or everything's going to work out okay. But you see that the little ripples that started here or there really do continue out, spread out, and can be a source of strength for workers. If you lose that connection to that those historical struggles, I think the struggles you're engaged in right now become all the harder. They look more dismal. They look more dead-ended. So that's one of the important ways that history... It, even if this, even if it doesn't always work out, even if the story doesn't end happily, the fact that workers always seem to be struggling and recognize that something isn't right about the way they're treated, and that the only way ultimately to solve that problem is through collective effort, is something that um, we need to look at history to see. Well, and as you mentioned briefly there, in terms of history's importance for the FE, it seemed like the union itself especially in its origins, really utilized its deep notion of history to like shape its strategies for how to even be successful at International Harvester. Like the title of the book itself alludes to this sense of history, like the long, deep grudge. These workers and the leaders of the FE knew that they had a grudge against the McCormick family, who to me seems like the modern day like succession family, the fictional (laughs) empire family, just a bunch of assholes. Um, but clearly, they rooted themselves as belonging to this legacy of workers struggling against international harvester, including the Haymarket Martyrs. But there were other successive efforts at organizing an international harvester that failed. Right. Or like you said, maybe they got some inches, but they didn't get as far along as they had hoped. 
And it seemed like for the FE, that really helped shape their strategies of like how they even got their foot in the door at International Harvester. So could you tell us a little bit more for listeners that don't know the story of like, how did FE emerge? Like how did it originally form itself into a union? And where was it successful where other union efforts had failed? Right. And before I answer that question, let me just um, pay tribute to the writer who's really responsible for the title of my book, The Long Deep Grudge, who is Nelson Algren, who is the great was the great Chicago um, writer. And it was his phrase, because as a Chicagoan um, who appreciated the importance of history to the city of Chicago, where I grew up, um, he wrote these words in his book, his 1951 book, Chicago City on the Make. And he said, city of the big shoulders, and this is in the right in the front piece of my book, city of the big shoulders was how the white-haired poet put it, maybe meaning that the shoulders had to get that wide because there were so many bone-deep grudges to settle. The big dark grudge cast by the four standing in white muslin robes, hands cuffed behind at the gallows head for the hope of the eight-hour day. The grudge between Grover Cleveland and John Peter Altgeld, the long, deep grudge born for McCormick, the Reaper, for Pullman and Pullman's Gary. Grudges like heavy hangovers from men and women whose fathers were not yet born when the bomb was thrown, the court was rigged, and the deed was done. And then at the end of this passage, he says, where undried blood on the pavement and undried blood on the field yet remembers Haymarket and Memorial Day. So Nelson Algren, as a you know true Chicagoan, recognized um, how much history and was steeped into the working class, both hopes, aspirations, and shortcomings in Chicago, and recognized the incidents like the, the hanging of the Haymarket martyrs and the Memorial Day massacre affected um, the um, what workers were able to achieve and what they thought of themselves and what their consciousness was. So I just wanted to make sure that Nelson Algren um, gets his due in terms of where I drew the title of my book. But also, again, it's a historical reference to this long, simmering animosity that workers at International Harvester had for a company that had treated them so um, badly and had exploited them for so many um, decades. So in terms of the formation of the union, one of the people, and in terms of what I was talking about before, in terms of those little ripples that uh, have bigger effects later on, one of the sort of heroes of the book that I like to talk about is a man named John Becker, who um, worked for International Harvester at the McCormick Works plant, the very same plant that was pivotal to the Haymarket riot in the 1920s. And in the 1920s, International Harvester, um, again, this massively global enterprise of massive power and scope, was one of the first unions, first companies, rather, to introduce what we now call company unions, employee representation plans, which drew a lot of favorable publicity for International Harvester. They were um, so progressive, so forward-thinking, bringing workers to the table. So, of course, we know that these works councils, as they were called, were shams. They were ways to avoid unions, to put workers off of unions, to convince, try to convince workers that we have your best interests at heart, um, to bring, you know, worker representatives in and explain to them why they had to cut, you know, workers' pay and why they weren't installing any safety equipment in the plant, et cetera, et cetera. So one of the people who gets elected to this, one of the first works councils in McCormick Works is a man named John Becker. And 
Becker decides early on that, in fact, he thinks that this should be functioning like a union. And so he decides that he is going to ask for a wage increase at the meeting of the Works Council. And he clearly has done a little bit of organizing before he arrives at this meeting, because once he raises this this request for a wage increase, he has all kinds of um, statistics at hand to show how workers simply can't make a living on the pay that International Harvester is providing them. And he um, obviously shocks the management representatives who are there. They're you know really put off that someone is um, making this request, but other workers are emboldened by his his um, standing up and making this demand, and they chime in in favor. And ultimately, after a lot of back and forth, they actually pass at this works council this demand for the wage increase. And this is over the objections of management. And you know, I don't think I'll be giving a lot of way to, uh, to say that despite the fact that this was passed at this works council, the wage increase was never granted. And over the course of the 1920s, it becomes clearer and clearer to workers that these works councils, which are still being lauded in the general press as you know, progressive and forward thinking, are really just there to um, as window dressing and um, are doing nothing for them except trying to inculcate workers with the ideology of free enterprise and um, and um, trickle down economics. And it's also should come as no surprise to your listeners that John Becker, shortly after he makes this um, request for a wage increase, disappears from McCormick Works. It's We don't know from the record whether he was fired or just kind of moved out um, into another department so he couldn't be on the Works Council anymore. But his action starts to galvanize workers within McCormick Works. You know, they start to complain about the fact that this this thing that's here that's supposed to be um, working for them is, in fact, working against them. And so as we get into the 1930s, the early 1930s, before there's the formation of the CIO, we're, we're hearing in the um, archival research I've done, you know, you hear about workers complaining about these works councils and starting to get together and starting the representatives actually on the works councils coming together and thinking that we should actually start acting like an actual union. So this is before the CIO is even formed. You have this nucleus of workers at the various McCormick, at various international harvester plants beginning to act like an actual union. And also not surprising, probably to your listeners, some of these people were in contact with Communist Party organizers, both inside and outside the plant, who were encouraging this kind of unionism. So when we have this, this what seems to be a breakthrough in 1935, the formation of the CIO, there's actually been this kind of nascent organizing going on in these plants, connections being made between workers and departments within the plants, but also you know, across the street at other plants, and beginning to agitate for this new form of organization. The CIO represents something new, something different from the old craft unions that had made up the American Federation of Labor, the AFL. This is industrial unionism, everybody in the same industry in one union, whether you're a skilled worker, unskilled worker, black, white, woman, man, whatever. If you work for International Harvester, you're going to be in the same union. That was a new thing in the 1930s, at least um, in terms of these unions that were organizing in the auto and farm equipment, steel um, industry. So Again, I, I talked for a while to make one basic point. 
that what looks like a sudden breakthrough, and again, this I don't think this will be that surprising to people who have any um, interest in labor history, what looks like a sudden breakthrough was in fact a result of a long-term series of organizational steps. And in many instances, the leaders of those attempts get fired, they disappear, they're blacklisted, and yet the seeds they, they were sowing the discontent they were um, bringing to the fore uh, made it possible for that organizing to go forward. And then you have this explosion of labor activity in the early and and mid-1930s, and suddenly that organizing, um, that structure that was there can can capture that and catapult something um, forward, which is what happens with the farm equipment workers. But I will also underscore that we can move on. That it was very, they only won one plant in 1938. Tractor Works right across the street from McCormick Works, which had a, a somewhat different workforce. You know, so this was, you know, the notion that in 1935, everybody suddenly got into a union and, you know, is, is also something we need to go back and take a harder look at. Um, in International Harvester, there was only one plant that was organized by 1941. Uh, and the company was still avidly resisting um, legally and in every other possible way uh, any further progress for the FE. So it was not until World War II really got started that the union manages to um, bring several more plants under contract. And with Fowler McCormick, the um, grandson of the original founder of the company, kicking and screaming all the way. So, So again, it's you know, somewhat like what we're seeing today at like at Amazon and Starbucks in in sort of a sudden explosion, but also kind of that discontent, those unhappy workers, those people feeling like something is just wrong here. There's a disconnect between the work I'm doing and what I'm being compensated, how I'm being compensated and how I'm being treated. That uh, had been percolating for quite some time. One thing I wanted to just highlight that you're mentioning is about these works councils, just because I continue to want to like tie this history with the present day. Is that it seems to me like the analog for today is, you know, basically HR departments, like most like companies still have these kind of residue of these works councils from the past. And they try to convince workers like we have an open door policy, we have a direct relationship with workers. And uh, it does seem like a lot of these what you call union avoidance strategies that International Harvester was employing in the 1920s and 30s are essentially the same playbook today. Like, do you agree with that assessment? Absolutely. And I mean, one of the the reasons that I structured the book the way I did, which is basically sort of the long history of this conflict between this radical union and this and this um, dominant company was because I wanted to tell the story not just of the union, but of capital. I wanted to tell both sides of the of the story. And there's no better company to look at than International Harvester if you're interested in that, this exact question that you raised, because International Harvester is one of the first corporations to introduce an industrial relations department. They practically invent that concept. Not surprisingly, there were family ties to the Rockefellers who were also um, initiating that kind of industrial relations and the company unions at Colorado, um, you know, in their Colorado um, companies. And so those family connections between the McCormicks and the Rockefellers prove really um, important in terms of uh, how corporate policy is uh, was determined. So yes, so International Harvester 
you know, moves away from, you know, in the 19th century, the philosophy of, of Cyrus McCormick II, when he was confronted with, with AFL unions that were organizing, was the tried and true tactic of just violent crackdown on unions, you know, as we see it at Haymarket, actually, you know, making sure that union leaders were literally, um, you know, gave up their lives in pursuit of union goals. But you know, but also, of course, in the 19th century, corporations had free hand to do whatever they wanted. We we know that things are bad today for um, Starbucks organizers that get fired. But in the 19th century, you know, companies literally had people killed. They had people blacklisted. They could fire you at will for any reason, and simply and and surely would if there they had even a hint of the fact that you were um, doing anything um, pro union. So that was the tactic of the 19th century, was that kind of heavy-handed anti-unionism. But by the 20th century, International Harvester, with its global reach and its inability to kind of know what's going on in every nook and cranny of its factories, uh, really did come to the conclusion the top management, Cyrus McCormick II, by then a, a mature corporate leader, decided that they really needed to do something different, which was try to inculcate these workers with the ethos of management. We started talking about management, you know, management rights and that management has your best interests at heart and that, but management is the only, you know, we are the ones who understand how the factories are run and how to efficiently produce things. And, and, you know, this goes hand in hand, obviously with breaking the power of craft unions, with introducing all kinds of um, skill displacing equipment. So it's on the one hand, you know, they're sort of encouraging workers to think of themselves as part of this family. On the other hand, they're doing everything they can to undermine any kind of association that workers have with each other and any kind of power that they have that comes from the labor that they do themselves. So so International Harvester, as one of the um, originators of sort of HR thinking is, you know, I think the book is full of precedence in that sort of regard. Even in one of the, you'd have to look in the footnotes to see this, but in uh, International Harvester was also one of the you one of the first um, companies to use a specifically a, a law firm, Safarth Shaw, that came about in the nineteen late nineteen thirties, specifically in response to the creation of the National Labor Relations Board to help companies legally avoid unions. So International Harvester is Safarth Shaw's first client. They become experts at using legal strategies to avoid union organization. So all of the things that we see happening now, uh, Amazon and Starbucks, certainly have their precedence in corporate behavior from much earlier. And it's not just a sort of academic interest, I think, to sort of learn that. It can help union organizers and union strategists as they're kind of looking to see um, what companies might do, what managements might do. And also, again, to recognize, hey, we have something in common with those CIO organizers and what they were up against. And look at the massive power that those companies had, and yet they managed um, somehow to um, to break through that. So I think that can be kind of encouraging. Yeah, well, and on that subject of both management and um, strategy, you know, today, I operate in the labor world and I hear this sentiment a lot in terms of strategy of like one of the goals is to, for unions today is to create cooperative and collaborative relationships with employers. It's like very, very common to hear that, especially when you're gearing up for like contract campaigns and things is like, 
we want to push, but we don't want to push too hard because we still got to get along with these people day to day and yada, yada, yada. And obviously, I, you know, anybody that's listened to my show knows how I feel about that. <laughs> but this was the kind of ethic or the mentality that International Harvester was trying to inculcate in the workers as you were describing, like management's rights, the idea that the workplace is a family. The FE explicitly rejected that notion. Uh, and they had a completely different ethos that you described in the book as, quote, management does not have the right to exist, which I love that. <laughs> I'm going to put that on a banner. Um, but how did that contrast with other unions in the late 30s and early 40s? You know, and also what having this idea, this notion that management does not have the right to exist, how did that shape? the FE's strategies and tactics for organizing? Like what, like what did that look like just in terms of their practices if they believed in this kind of core philosophy? I've talked, you know, for a while now about International Harvester. And now we need to, to, to move on to, um, to the second actor in my, in my book, the really important other actor in the book, which is the farm equipment workers. And yes, and this philosophy that one of the top leaders of the union enunciated that you just um, mentioned, which was, you know, the belief that management had no right to exist. So how did this union come to this radical philosophy and what impact did it have on the functioning of the union? And as I mentioned, Communist Party organizers were central to organizing most of the CIO unions and the FE was no exception. The difference with the FE and some of the other unions like the United Auto Workers, for example, is that Communist Party influence remained important throughout the union's existence, um, at least to the top leadership, who did embrace this philosophy, this Marxist anti-capitalist philosophy uh, that they tried their best to uh, to uh, encourage uh, that sentiment among the workers that that management had no rights, that workers. Um, you know, should have all the power in um, the factories they were working in and and that the union existed to try to enforce that as much as possible. So the FE came into being in the in the late 1930s and by the end of World War II and the beginning of then the Cold War, the union has a conflict both with the International Harvester and the other companies it was dealing with, but also Increasingly importantly, with the United Auto Workers, with UAW, with the UAW and Walter Ruther, the leader of the UAW, who becomes the most important anti-communist labor leader within the CIO, and Ruther does enunciate the philosophy that you um, articulated earlier, which is one that, in order for workers to best get what they deserve, that there needed to be a level of cooperation with management, that the post-war environment seemed to suggest that the American economy could just keep expanding exponentially forever. And that expansion made it possible, he thought, for both workers and managers and, you know, and society as a whole to kind of just enjoy the fruits of this growing economy. But that in order for that to happen, Ruther bought into the notion that helping increase corporate profitability and productivity was an important function for a union to assist in. So in other words, that meant 
no strike clauses. That meant um, productivity pay increases. So pay that's tied to workers helping the company be more productive, be more efficient. And that sort of, and, you know, and maintaining quiescent uh, labor relations. So, you know, unending production, um, workers working continually, and, you know, and everybody would benefit from that. And, you know, and the, and the, the um, UAW certainly does negotiate good wage and benefit packages for its workforce. The FE, this communist influenced union, totally rejects this philosophy, believes that, um, and especially because it has this long history or recognizes the long history of International Harvester, that the only way for workers to get more is for management and corporations to get less, and that it's a zero sum game. That you know the the sort of the famous pie analogy. It's you're not you're not you cannot expand the pie. Workers need to get a bigger slice of what's already on the table, and they have to keep fighting to get that bigger slice. So the FE, in contrast to the UAW, never supports no strike clauses. The FE International Harvester the plants uh, international harvester plants that are represented by the FEC ex- see enormous levels of wildcat what were called wildcat strikes walkouts um between contracts enormous numbers of shop floor protests and uh mostly they're fighting over conditions of work in the plants international harvester had a incendiary piecework pay system um, that required workers to work harder to get more money. And so this was um, uh, a formula for constant um, shop floor turmoil. And the FE responded not by thinking that the best way to do this was to file grievances and wait until, you know, they could have a meeting with management and, and try to talk it out. The, the general response among the FE and shop um, stewards in FE plants was when a worker had a grievance was to stop work and leave the plant. And so you just had hundreds and hundreds of walkouts between contracts in FE plants. It had a practical impact in terms of high wages for FE workers, but also more um, livable working standards a better pace of production in these plants. Workers were not worked um, to exhaustion. FE members recognized that. And as this Cold War conflict between the UAW and FE heats up, and you see the UAW initiating raids against the FE, trying to take over representation at plants organized by the FE, international harvester workers reject those advances, despite the fact that the UAW is much bigger, much better financed, um, and supported by, um, you know, the popular press, et cetera, and remain loyal to the FE through the 1950s. So this philosophy, this slogan of management has no right to exist wasn't just uh, uh, something to put on a placard. It actually had an impact on the daily lives of FE members and meant that they really were in everyday conflict with management. So the total opposite of this notion of seeking harmony between labor and management was the philosophy the FE embraced and and practiced. I want to return to strikes and wildcats in a moment. But before that, I think it would be remiss if we didn't talk about another core philosophy of the FE, which was this belief in racial justice and interracial solidarity, because that is another facet of the FE that really seemed to stand in contrast to the broader labor movement around it. And 
to be quite frank, I would say even today, while we, I think it's fair to concede there's been progress on this front in the labor movement, this like core commitment to interracial solidarity, I think is still lacking today. So can you talk a little bit more about why the FE believed in racial justice and interracial solidarity and like what that actually looked like for the union in practice? Well, I would say I think that the um, the commitment to um, racial solidarity, racial justice, to fighting racism really did stem from the Communist Party connections that the union's leadership had. That what you know, the Communist Party in the 1930s and 40s was really the only organization outside um, black-led civil rights organizations that was totally committed to racial justice and also was was trying to put that into practice. So within those unions that had significant Communist Party influence, you do see that play out in reality. In the FE, in the FE's case, the story that I tell where that's most clear, and I do think that this is a it's an amazing story. I encourage folks to 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 read the book to to learn all about it. But is the FE's drive to organize the International Harvesters plant in Louisville, Kentucky, which they open after World War II as part of the general capital flight. You start seeing after World War II to point south. So this is International Harvesters' first southern plant. And Louisville is not in the deep south, but it was still a segregated town at that time. And there were several unions that compete, um, this is 1946, to um, secure representation at the plant, the UAW, the FE's chief rival being one of them. And the, and the, the workforce is going to be 80% white, but there will be International Harvester unusually commits to hiring black workers at the plant for production jobs. So the union faces this conundrum or any of the unions organizing on that plant in terms of what are they going to tell workers about how black and white workers are going to interact within the union if you choose our union. And uh, the FE makes clear from the get-go that absolute racial solidarity is the philosophy that the union will, will embrace and promote. And it makes this clear um, in the fact that the two lead organizers, uh, one is white, one is black, and the black uh, organizer is a man named Fred Marrero, who had been an outspoken advocate within the African-American community in Louisville. He gets a job in the International Harvester plant right off the bat. And, and the other unions that are organizing are not <laughs> promoting that kind of absolute solidarity. So it's a kind of an amazing story that the FE, first of all, wins that representational election and then uh, turns around in early 1947 or, and, and, um, or in 1947 and initiates a walkout to protest the, the company's um, intent to impose a lower pay scale in, its, in this Louisville plant, in its southern plant, than it paid workers in the north, what they called the southern differential. And on a campaign that we are not going to be second class citizens in the South, the union protests this um, lower pay rate, walks out for 47 days and ends up beating back this um, attempt by the company to impose lower pay rates in, in Louisville. And the process of this strike, which involves both black and white workers, most of whom are young, many of them veterans from World War II. They forge this immense sense of cohesion and solidarity that carries over 
And this is a story that I think people should just get the book to read because the, the individual stories of both the black and white workers and how they become close friends in a segregated town when that was not um, something that happened regularly. They socialize with each other. They see each other in each other's homes. They begin fighting against segregation within Louisville together. is really quite an extraordinary story and one that uh, is really something quite special, I think. But it required a union leadership that made it absolutely clear that this kind of solidarity was essential, not just because it was kind of a nice thing to believe in, but because without it, white workers and black workers, it was the only way they would get what they deserved. And that was what the union kept preaching constantly, that without this unity, the company is going to break you apart and all of you are going to suffer. And, you know, the other important lesson I think about this is that the black workers, and I have interviews with um, workers who worked in this plant, you know, emphasized the kind of racism that they were up against initially and the workers who who came to work uh, at that plant in 1946. These were many of them came from the Kentucky Hills. They were steeped in generations of racism and white supremacy. And so, you know, the fact that they were able to confront those workers, convince them that solidarity was absolutely necessary for um, this union to succeed, for them to do better is an important lesson, I think, for today. You don't have to write off people whose ideologies seem uh, inconsistent with unionism, working people. You can appeal to them. You can win them over to make it clear what I, I refer to now as what I call lived solidarity. This constant turmoil, this constant working together was something that the fact that the workers were out in and out all the time in this plant bred the kind of solidarity and commitment to, um, you know, they became to see how necessary it was that they worked together on a daily basis, not just every four or five years when contracts expired. So that also, so the, the wildcatting, the walkouts, and the racial justice component were tied together. They were not two separate things. They were absolutely tied together. You know, like you're saying, the wildcats, the strikes, and the racial solidarity were tied together. I want to talk a little bit more about strikes because there's kind of an irony in the book in that there's a lot of epic strikes described in this book. People really should read it. And they're pretty hardcore. I mean, I love this story. I can't remember the person's name, but like even people like hijacking trains to <laughs> block gate entrances and uh, then immediately getting beat up. I mean, I don't see, these weren't like single day ULP strikes. These were like epic, hardcore, you know, picket lines and and strikes that really helped spread the union. The union never rose to more than 100,000 members, give or take. So it was a smaller union at the end of the day, but still really punched above its weight. And walkouts and strikes and like direct action on the shop floor clearly were a big factor into why. But there's also, as I shared this story with some workers that I talk to a lot, and I just like to tell them history, uh, labor history, they always get inspired by this. But then the question always comes down to like, well, how did this union disappear? Like, why did they, why aren't they around anymore? And it's like, well, there's something of an irony in that the striking philosophy also had its limits for the FE. So could you just talk a little bit more about how they went on strike and, there were, and then once they saw the limits of the strategy and if you could incorporate a little bit of their slow decline? Right. I mean, it's obviously the FE with its philosophy, it became into the crosshairs of not just 
corporate America for, for, you know, for promoting this kind of anti-management, anti-capitalist unionism that was also, you know, led to disruption and and um, encroached on profitability and insisted that workers um, not have should not have to work themselves to death to um, to get a living wage. So that was, you know, that that led them to be uh, a target for corporate America. The CIO, as it consolidates um, its anti-communism and expels that um, host of unions, the UE being the United Electrical Workers being the, the biggest union that is expelled in 1949. And then the, the FE and the UE actually enter into an autonomous merger after that, though the FE sort of continues as a separate enterprise. Uh, so you've got corporate America against these left-wing unions. You've got the labor establishment against these left-wing unions. You've got the corporate-dominated um, press against the uh, left-wing unions, the government with the House on american Activities Committee and the FBI targeting these union leaders. So the fact that the FE can't survive this onslaught is not especially surprising. What's, what is surprising, and this is the story I tell in the book, is that it survived as long as it did with the kind of tremendous loyalty from the rank and file that it generated. So that's the that's the story that I think um, today's organizers and union activists want to look at. But there's also it's also a cautionary tale about, you know, about the immense power of corporate America, which they still have. Though, again, I would say I don't think they have quite the awesome unrestrained power that these corporations did in the 19th century and um, before um, the, the Wagner Act. And, you know, and their ability to just literally kind of exterminate in various ways organizers. So, but nonetheless, this is a relentless, ceaseless fight for um, for organizers and the working class. And so um, that's the other side of this. And I do think that for today's young activists, and I certainly celebrate this in my book, there's a lot of enthusiasm about rank and file activism and picket line militancy. And we want to see um, so much more of that. But, you know, the, the FE's story also indicates how difficult that is to maintain on the long term. And, you know, and it's not so much the union leadership that sours on the constant walkouts and the and the constant engagement with management as it is in many cases the rank and file who just it's it's really hard to keep up that kind of level of constant confrontation and so it does become and especially when you're up against all that everything else you know including and as maybe especially on that instance the labor establishment with the UAW constantly saying come over here come over to us and you can have a you can you know get all the pay and benefits and you're not going to have to be fighting all the time it's you know it's so much easier so you know in the FE's response continually was, you're not going to get that easy life if you don't keep up the fight, but it seems so appealing. So, you know, and I don't have an answer because I, you know, I, I don't know that I can tell you what the formula is, but I would say it's, it you know, that kind of militancy and and continual engagement takes a toll and you need a lot of support within the labor movement to be able to to continue it. So hopefully we'll be seeing, you know, we're seeing more militant leadership at the top of the labor movement beginning to to take you know to have some effect and and so if we can see that that will help 
But it also does take this philosophical commitment to anti-capitalism, to Marxist um, a Marxist sense of of surplus value and profitability, and you know, if they get more, we get less. To really understand how and why workers need to fight. Well, on that, I want to try to bring us to a conclusion here. And since you're highlighting that today, you know, we always see these little episodes of the radicalism kind of percolate back to the surface and then die down. I like the the classic expression, like us on the left, we predict six out of the last three revolutions, you know, so I don't want to get too much into that territory. But in thinking about the FE and trying to wrap up this conversation, I wonder if you see glimmers of the spirit of the FE in any of today's labor organizing in the movement and uh, where you think it could be expanded. You know, can we bring this ethic that management does not have the right to exist or this philosophy that management does not have the right to exist in today's labor movement? What is it going to take to get there? I mean, certainly among a lot of young activists who are searching for different kinds of strategies, different kinds of ways of thinking about unionism. I, you know, clearly at the Amazon labor union, they rejected the notion that there was some formula that had to be followed and that um, you had to listen to a bureaucracy that would encourage you to, you know, or that, you know, that you had to follow particular steps and, and that are reading William Z. Foster for, you know, inspirational ideas about how to organize. I think, you know, clearly there's this hunger for different paths, a recognition that, you know, among, I think, among an entire generation of working people, that this working, cooperating, you know, doing your best is not the ticket anymore for a better life. Um, and, and the quality of work life that people are enunciating more and more as something that is a value they want to fight for, that it's not just about what kind of pay you're getting, but how hard you have to work to get it and what the conditions of that work are. I think that is a throwback, not just to the kinds of issues the FE was raising about management not having a right to exist in the sense that to have a really fulfilling work life is a right, not just a, a, a perk. That throws back not just to the FE, but I encourage people to go all the way back to the 19th century, to those skilled craftsmen, to those anarchist unions that saw labor as a noble enterprise and but that one that belonged and the things that were produced that belonged to workers and not to the people who owned the factories. So I think in that, um, I think that people are beginning to really question the structure of work itself and who really produces the value. I mean, it may not be in sort of Marxist terms, but like who really is essential in this enterprise. And why is it that I should have to work three jobs or work in this one job, be on call constantly, be monitored constantly? Is that the kind of society, is that the only kind of uh, way to structure society and an economy? And I think more and more younger people in particular are saying, I don't think so. I want to figure out a different way. And that's, that's the kind of thinking I think that radicalized workers in the 1930s and again, it wasn't just about wages, though certainly um, getting a, a decent wage was was part of that battle. But it was also about just the quality of work life, not having to to endure unsafe, gruesome working conditions, dangerous 
standards, um, you know, putting your life at risk to earn already an adequate paycheck is not a way to run a to run a country or a, or a world. And I think since more people are sort of pushing in that direction, I think there's all kinds of um, possibility for new ways to organize work, new ways to organize unions. Um, you know, I'm glad to see people pushing the UAW and from the rank and file and, and you know, and, and, and all these new unions that are coming about that, that are, again, focused on things besides just, you know, do, do, I, do I get a pretty good income here? But, you know, but, but what do I have to do to get it is, is also an essential question that a union has to be about or else it's not doing its job. The book is The Long Deep Grudge. It's from Haymarket Books. Uh, our guest has been Tony Gilpin. I really appreciate your time. Uh, the book is amazing. Like Folks should really read it. It's very rich with events, with people. I think it should be like an HBO show. You know, that's what I was thinking. Like it would last like probably six or seven seasons, I feel like. It's true. I think the, you know, the anecdotes and the stories in here, I mean, I do want to, you know, make that pitch for myself because it's got some just wonderful stories, both on the on the crazy McCormick family side and but in terms of the workers that either I was able to, you know, find their stories in archives or whatever, but also in terms of interviews and, you know, and again, I I, I hearken back to the Louisville story. I mean, there are some really extraordinary people um, who fought to build that union and who fought to build the kind of interracial um, solidarity that really was a precedent for what the civil rights movement would would later become. So that's really some those those people, the fact that I was able to to put their names in a book and that people like you are reading about them is what makes, you know, doing doing this worthwhile. But but they're great storytellers. And I was privileged to be able to to tell those stories. So, um, so I'm, I'm glad that you liked it so much. Yeah. And I definitely encourage our listeners to go get a copy and read it. Uh, we'll include links in our show notes and you know, I just wanted to say thank you for coming on labor wave. Hopefully we can have you again in the future. I'd love that. Thanks so much.